Um, yeah, so that's what the precautions are about, but there's only precautions. Uh, can I get you to turn with me to Acts chapter 15? Acts 15. No, too dangerous. Never mind, it's okay. Acts 15, um, in your church Bibles. It's on page 1113, and there's an outline of where we're going um, in one of the handouts that you've received as you came in. Uh, so it'll be helpful to have that with you as well. I'll lead us in prayer, uh, and then we'll start. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you speak to us through your word. And we pray now, as we consider this passage, uh, that your spirit would be uh, working in us, uh, causing us to respond rightly to what you have said to us here. Um, help us to, yeah, to, to, um, to rejoice where we need to rejoice, uh, to take warning where we need to take warning. Uh, Father, um, we pray that you would be glorified uh, as your word is taught. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. People fight all the time, don't they? Uh, get a group of people together, and eventually, somewhere along the line, you'll get a fight. Uh, even in churches. Now, there are some fights that are ungodly in the way they're carried out. Some fights are carried out in a godly way. When I do pre-marriage counselling, uh, one of the things we do is to teach couples how to have a godly fight. Uh, but some fights, well, some fights are not worth having at all. You mustn't fight for the sake of ego or for the sake of, you know, satisfaction of winning a fight or anything like that. There may even be issues that we disagree on, but we can agree to disagree. But then there are issues that really are worth fighting over. Fighting really, really hard about. And today, we will see one of those issues. Over the last few weeks, we have seen amazing things as the gospel goes out to the Gentiles. Gentiles, as you know, are people who are not Jews. People like most of us here, who don't belong to any of the tribes of Israel, and we don't have any genetic material from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were part of the Old Testament people of God. Back early in this series, in Acts chapter 10, God did amazing things to show Peter that the gospel was not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. God sent a vision to Peter, and then to this Gentile God called Cornelius to bring them together. And, as Peter preached the gospel to him and his household, God poured out his spirit on those Gentiles just as he'd done for the Jews on the day of Pentecost. And so Peter had no choice but to baptize them. Now there were Jewish Christians who were disturbed by this. They were known as the Circumcision Party. Right now, how you have a circumcision party? Well, you have a circ- no, it's not that kind of circumcision party. Okay? It's the party, the group of people who do circumcision, who like circumcision. Right? They have the Circumcision Party. And when they questioned him, about fellowshipping and eating with Gentiles in Acts chapter 11, Peter reported all the things that had happened to the church in Jerusalem. And the Christians in Jerusalem rejoiced that God granted the Gentiles, even the Gentiles, 
repentance unto life. Later on, in Acts chapter 11, some of the Christians from Jerusalem, who had been scattered by the persecution into Gentile areas, began to tell the Gentiles about Jesus. And the Lord brought people in. He gathered a church in the city of Antioch. And Saul and Barnabas were teachers who taught in that church. Saul, who was later known as Paul, had been a great persecutor of the church. But Jesus had appeared to him, made him an apostle to the Gentiles, changed him completely. And so there he was in Antioch, together with Barnabas, serving this church. Many came to faith in Christ, many grew as they heard about Jesus, and that was the first place where the disciples were called Christians. That's important, we'll come back to it later. On one occasion, the Antioch church sent Saul and Barnabas back south to Jerusalem with aid. And while they were there, in Acts 12, they witnessed well, all kinds of things that the Jerusalem church was going through. They were going through persecution, they saw their faithfulness, you know, James was killed by the authorities, Peter was released miraculously, the church was praying for them, God punished King Herod who tried to usurp him, all those things, the word of God continued to increase, and Saul and Barnabas was, was part of that, in that Jerusalem church. And after seeing all that, and building friendships and relationships with all the people there, going through all these together, they went back to Antioch. So there's a connection, see? But in Acts 13, there they are in Antioch, the Holy Spirit commanded that Saul and Barnabas were set aside for missionary work. So the church sent them off on their first missionary journey. They went to Cyprus and to various places which we now know as modern Turkey, and they spoke the gospel there. First they spoke to the Jews, but when the majority of Jews rejected them, then they spoke to the Gentiles. Because God had said in the book of Isaiah that it's not enough for the servant, that is Jesus, to restore Israel, God would make him a light to the nations. And so that's what happened. Many Gentiles believed, were added to Christ's kingdom. Saul and Barnabas faced many persecutions, but God granted them a rich harvest. And by the end of chapter 14, they had returned to Antioch. There they were, back to their home base, their sending church. They gathered all the people together, telling them about what God had done. And God had opened a door of faith for the Gentiles. And there was much rejoicing. They'd been at that base at Antioch for quite a while, when another problem developed. The circumcision party raised his ugly head again. And they sent people up from Judea to the church at Antioch. And you know what these men were teaching? Have a look at chapter 15, verse 1. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Isn't that a terrible thing to teach? They were trying to add to the free gift of salvation in Jesus. They were, and what they were trying to add was a reversion back to the law of Moses. 
They were saying to the Gentiles, look, you really have to become a Jew to be saved. Be a Jew. Get circumcised. Obey the law of Moses. And then, as a pinnacle of it all, you can trust in Jesus. You can't have Jesus without Moses. You can't just believe in Jesus and expect to be saved. No, no, no. You have to be part of God's people, the people of which Jesus is king. And how do you become part of God's people? Well, you get circumcised to muscle. And that is just the kind of thing that made Paul really, really mad. That was a fight worth having for two reasons. Number one, these people were adding to the gospel. By making salvation dependent on circumcision, they were denying that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They were adding to the gospel. And whenever you add to the gospel, you, you deny it, you destroy it. No longer is the gospel a gospel of grace. It is grace plus circumcision and obey the law of Moses. Friends, never add to the gospel of Christ. Never make anything else a requirement for salvation besides faith in Him. Not baptism, not confirmation, not walking down the front, not saying a sinner's prayer, not coming to church, not keeping the commandments, not, not anything but faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of those things are good things. Don't get me wrong, there may be expressions of faith. are not requirements for salvation. They are responsible. Now, there are some churches in the Klang Valley which teach a distorted gospel. There are some who say, unless you are baptized in our church, in our way, you cannot be saved. Have you come across those people? Anyone? Nobody expected to come across those people. Yes, you have. Okay, good. Smack one and ACA all came across these guys. All right. So we've got someone respect to. What about those who say, unless you speak in tongues, you cannot be saved? Have you come across those? Anyone come across those group? Yeah? Okay. Friends, these are false gospels, aren't they? If, when you get baptized, you want to get baptized by full immersion, no problem. But you don't need to do that in order to be saved. If you want to go home and pray in tongues, no problem. But you don't have to do that in order to be saved. And to suggest you do is, is preposterous. It is in fact a denial of the gospel of grace. Stay away from people who say such things. There is nothing that you can add as a requirement for salvation apart from faith in Jesus. By making circumcision a requirement for salvation, these circumcision guys were destroying the gospel. Number one. And number two, they were creating artificial barriers, weren't they? Christ died and he fulfilled the law of Moses. So those who are in him are no longer under that law. He had broken down the barrier between Jew and Gentile that circumcision and all the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament were meant to build, to, to build up. Yes, those laws were given by God. 
But they were there to make Israel different from the nations. But God is now calling people from all the nations. The barriers of the law were broken down at the cross. The ultimate circumcision happened at the cross when Jesus put off his whole body of flesh on our behalf. And furthermore, we have been given the Spirit. So we, both Jew and Gentile, who are in Christ, have been given what the Mosaic law, the law of Moses, looked forward to but could never deliver. That is the circumcision of the heart. That is the real circumcision. The circumcision of the law of Moses could only foreshadow. These circumcision party people, they were, they were trying to turn back the clock. They were so steeped in their customs and traditions and external observances that they, they failed to see the, the spiritual reality of what those observances were pointing to. They denied the gospel and they divided the church by building barriers for Gentile believers. No wonder it says in verse 2 that Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. They had a fight. Good and proper one. Now, since this problem started in Judea with the Jewish Christians, the Antioch church decided the best way to sort it out would be, well, go back to the mother church in Jerusalem and deal with it there. That's where the problem came from. So in verse 2, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. The apostles, we know, the Christ appointed representatives. Right, we've got Paul, but here Paul goes up to see the, 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 the twelve. And the elders, they're the congregational leaders of the church in, in, uh, in Jerusalem. So they go to consult them about it. They go to see them about it. Uh, not because they don't know the answer. Okay, we, we see it's very obvious that they do. Uh, they say, in verse, it says in verse 3, it's being set on their way by the church. They pass through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. So they've been, uh, they go to Phoenicia and Samaria, which are on the way. Um, and, and they tell them, uh, about what God has done among the Gentiles. And there is great rejoicing, joy, to see what God has done. Right? It's as if, you know how the gospel started in Jerusalem and it went out to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth? Well, it's like backtracking. Backtracking, going back, going back to Jerusalem. Along the way, there's this joy of what, of what, of what, what God has done. Well, when Paul and Barnabas reached Jerusalem, they were warmly received by the apostles and the elders. And they also declared there, verse 4, about all the things that God had done with them. Just like they did in Antioch and Phoenicia and Samaria. But this time, not everyone rejoiced. The circumcision group, who were Pharisees, objected with the same objection we heard at the beginning of the chapter. They say in verse 5, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. See, Paul is all well and good to these Gentiles who believe. Now, finish the job. Make them proper Jews. This, of course, stirs up the 
great controversy, doesn't it? Right? And that's what Paul and Barnabas were there for. They have a big discussion. Uh, and so in verse 6, the apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And I'm sure there was a lot of discussion. Lots of investigation, a lot of controversy. Uh, it talks about in verse 7 about much debate. There's this fight going on there, and they're debating the matter. But, we see here, three blows that nail the group's decision. It's like a boxing match. Right? You go one, pop, and you go left, pop, and a right one, bam, for knockout. Okay? So we see, what we see, Peter does a bang, and then Saul and uh, Paul and Barnabas do the pop, and then James does the push, knockout, and the fellow comes forth, flying down. Okay? Watch them. Watch them. The first one is Peter. Right? Um, this is uh, verses uh, 7 to 9. After there been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now he's talking about the incident with Cornelius uh, that we mentioned earlier. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. See what he's saying? See, when they believed, God poured out his spirit upon them. Did he wait for them to get circumcised? No. He poured out his spirit upon them the moment they believed, just like he'd done for the Jews on the day of Pentecost. It's exactly the same. He made no distinctions. God made no distinction between the circumcised and the uncircumcised. And all these guys did was believe in Jesus. This circumcision party people were so concerned about the Gentiles being ceremonially clean on the outside, but by faith, God had already cleansed their hearts. Something the law of Moses could never do. Something the outside cleansing was pointing forward to, and now they've got it. And so Peter tells them off in verse 10. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? See, the Jews themselves could never live up to the law as a way of getting right with God. What the law did was to condemn them, show them how sinful they were. The only way that Peter and the other Jews were going to be saved was by trusting in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that way of salvation for Jews and Gentiles was exactly the same. Jews like Peter were under the curse of the law because they didn't live up to the law. The law showed their sin and they were saved by the grace of Jesus. The Gentiles were under a curse for disobeying what they knew of God's law. And they were saved by the grace of Jesus. Jew and Gentile are only saved by believing in Jesus who took the punishment for them, for relying on him as their king. Peter says in verse 11, But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So if we're saved by grace, Jew, both Jew, both Gentile, what's the point of putting the Gentiles back under the law? They were sinned. They were saved from all their sin by trusting in Jesus. Putting the yoke of the law on them, putting them back under the burden of the very thing that resulted in the Jews being condemned, that would be an awful thing to do. It would, the words of verse 10, be testing God. 
be like asking God to come on them with a ton of bricks because they're trying to reverse his saving plan. Be asking for God's judgment because they're distorting his way of salvation. There's a punch by Peter, isn't it? And then the next blow is landed by Paul and Barnabas. We read about it in verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what wonders and signs God had done through them among the Gentiles. So that's a pretty short summary. But presumably, what they're telling here is the things that we've been reading about the last few weeks. God opened a door among the Gentiles for their message. Maybe they talked about how God confirmed their message with signs, wonders and miracles, just like he'd done when Jesus was walking this earth and when the apostles were in Jerusalem. They were told about Sergius Paulus, the the Roman proconsul who believed in Jesus, and then the the, um, Bar-Jesus, the uh, Jewish magician who who tried to prevent him and how God punished him. And they were told about the lame man who had been healed at Lystra which would have reminded them about the healing of the lame man by Jesus, by the pool of Siloam, the healing of the lame man by Peter, near the gate beautiful, near the temple. Many, many more genuine signs and wonders and miracles showing what God was doing was, was, was a continuation of that the very same thing. And bringing the gospel to the Gentiles, God was authenticating their ministry. And as the Gentiles went forth, they would have told them how many of them came into the kingdom of Jesus. It's the second blow. But the third blow was the final knockout delivered by James himself. Now, this James is not the Peter James and John James. Right? That's James, the brother of John. He's been killed by this time. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. James was not a believer when Jesus was uh, before Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, but Jesus appeared to him after his resurrection. And he believed, and now he seems to be one of the leaders, if not the leader, of the Jerusalem church. James says, verse 13, while they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that is Simon or Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. God first brought the Gentiles in through Simon Peter. It's interesting to you, not the the way James uses the word visited, right? Because in the Old Testament, and in fact in the Gospels, it's used for God coming to see his people and save them. And it was always the Jews now, James is using it for the Gentiles. And then he says, he, he came to, to, to take from them a people for his name. In the Old Testament, Israel were the people called by God's name. And here he's saying, God is taking from the Gentiles a people called by his name. You see, as Peter preached the gospel, God authenticated that. God brought the people to Christ and showed in the pouring out of the Spirit that really that was the same as what happened with the Jews. 
God was taking for the Gentiles, a people called by his name. Salvation has come to the Gentiles through the gospel. And these Gentiles are now called by his name. They are Christians. They bear the name of Christ. So God visited the Gentiles to take from them a people called by his name. And James says this is perfectly consistent with the Old Testament scriptures. Verse 15, And with this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Two big things that this prophecy declares. Firstly, God is going to rebuild the tent or the booth of David, which is in ruins. A thousand years before Jesus came, David was the king of Israel. And David wanted to build God a house, a temple. And God said, no, I'm going to build you a house, a dynasty. A dynasty that will last forever. But by the time Jesus was born, David's house had become just a, a booth or a tent. And a fallen or ruined one at that. The kingdom had long been split between the north and the south. Even the people of the south no longer had a son of David on the throne. But God had promised through Amos that he would rebuild and restore this tent of David. And we've seen how it happened. King Jesus, descendant of David, died and rose again to bring in the kingdom. He restored Israel in himself and in his twelve apostles. And then the remnant, the true Jews from Jerusalem and Judea and the south came under his rule when they believed in him. And a number of the Samaritans believed in him. They entered his kingdom from the north. The house of David was restored. That was the first stage. But then here's the second stage, verse 17. And the purpose of it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles were called by my name, says the Lord. It's not just the remnant of Israel that will be saved in the end, it's the remnant of mankind. It's the people called by the name of the Lord. They too will be part of David's kingdom. They too will be under the Messiah's rule. And so, it wasn't just a new thing that Peter and Paul and Barnabas kind of like dreamt up or anything. No, 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 no. James says, look, this is, this is part of God's plan. God had made it known by his prophets long ago that Gentiles would turn to the Lord and be called by his name. And so in light of the scriptures, James gives his judgment. Makes his decision. And coming from James, it is a knockout blow. Verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Don't touch out them. Don't touch out them. Don't disturb them. Don't go and say you must be circumcised. Don't go and say you must, you must obey the law of Moses. No, 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 no. Don't go and disturb those Gentiles. However, there are a few things, James says, we should tell them to avoid. Verse 20. 
but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from that which has been strangled and from blood. Now James is not talking about salvation here. He's already established that we're saved by grace through faith. Peter's said that and everyone's okay with that. But now here are four things the Gentiles would need to avoid in order to live a godly life. Before we look at those four things, do you want to stop and stretch a little bit? You want to do that? No? Okay? Okay. Now, let's think about these four things. There's lots of different ways um, various commentators have tried to um, explain these four things. Because some of them look like they're moral things, and some look like ceremonial. But what's, what's the purpose of these four? How do they fit together? And most of the things I've read are frankly quite unpersuasive. Right. Let me give you the two best ones. And let me tell you... I'll we'll come, we'll come to I'll tell you a bit something else later. Okay. Let me give you the second best one that I think. And this is that the whole thing is to do with idolatry. Right? All the prohibitions that James is here, all these four things that James is saying here, is actually saying, don't get involved with idols. The first one is like a heading. Right? Avoid the pollution of idols. Uh, and then specifically later on, you see a subset of that becomes, um, avoid the food offered to idols. The second thing, well, when James talks about sexual immorality, he's not meaning sexual immorality in general. He's thinking of the kind of temple prostitution that you get in pagan temples. So avoid that. Temple prostitution. And then, well, in the temples you get they did things like strangle animals and drink blood. Those are rituals in the pagan temples and hence the, the third and fourth prohibition. And so one, two, three, four are all about pagan worship that the Gentiles used to be involved in. And so the one thing that James is saying here is if you're called by God's name, then you cannot belong to another. Don't get caught up in idol worship. That is a reasonable way of holding those four things together. But on the face of it, when you read it, it doesn't really sound like the whole thing's about idol worship, does it? The word for sexual immorality is not limited to temple prostitution or even prostitution. And really there are easier ways to say avoid idol temples than to cryptically, cryptically describe various things that happen there and then tell people to avoid them. So I want to give you a second view. The second one is controversial hypothesis. I'm going to share it with you. I'm not sure about it. Not sure about it. Happy to be corrected. Hear me out because what we want to do is be faithful to the Word of God. However popular or unpopular, however easy or hard, however acceptable or unacceptable our conclusions might be. Right? So let me offer it to you tentatively. Judge it by the Word of God. Not fight about it though. Listen to James again in verses 19 to 21. Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, 
but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood for from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogue we know what the first bit means don't trouble the Gentiles who turn to God don't lay the yoke of the law of Moses on them again because salvation is by grace through faith you want to live a godly life here are four things that Gentiles particularly need to remember and maybe it's because these are particular Gentile kind of temptations these are things that Jews are less likely to fall into but the Gentiles the kind of background they come from makes it easy for them to fall into these things so please remember these four things James is saying to them firstly avoid the pollution of idols because unlike the Jews the Gentiles had associations with pagan gods that was their background anything to do with your former gods get rid of it I can't bring that into the Christian faith there is no room for syncretism mixing old religion and new or you pollute it no avoid idolatry secondly avoid sexual immorality the Gentiles were famous for sexual immorality the Jews always thought they were terrible because they were, they were so immoral lots of sex outside marriage for the pagans and James says don't bring that into the church that will be a point of temptation for you Gentiles even more than for the Jews avoid it don't do that And those last two things, I think they are linked, even though they seem strange to our ears. Avoid the strangled and avoid blood. They're linked because strangled animals don't have blood properly drained from them. So they will actually come under the avoidance of blood. And it doesn't seem just to be in pagan temples, it seems to be anywhere. Don't eat blood. Now, let me confess that I like my steak rare. So, this is, this is strange to me as well. Many people say these blood prohibitions were just so that the Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians can eat freely together. Uh, and you may even go and reinterpret the other two, the, the, um, the sexual immorality and the, uh, and the idolatry, um, in that kind of way as well, working backwards and say, this is all just temporary concessions for the sake of fellowship. But that doesn't quite work um, on the first two. And even if it were so, one would have thought the first thing James would have said would be to avoid pork, wouldn't it? Or other unclean things. Why single out blood? Seems to be a funny thing to single out if if you're talking about Jews and Gentiles being able to eat together. So many other things you could you could you could raise. So it can't simply be that. And the other reason James gives, the other thing is James gives the reason, verse 21, for, in ancient gener- for from ancient generations, Moses has been proclaimed in every city. So it seems more like something to do with the Old Testament than with pagan customs. Yet at the same time, we already know that we're not under the law that God gave Moses. So what's he talking about Moses? 
It was already accepted that we're not under the Mosaic law. So what's, what's, what's going on? What if this was, like the other two, a command that the Gentiles have the tendency to disobey? If so, it must be a command that somehow in Moses, and yet not part of the law of Moses that God gave him at Sinai, which we're not under. Is there a command in Moses like that? And the answer is yes. Back in Genesis chapter 9, God had saved Noah from the flood. And God says to Noah, chapter 9 verse 3, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. See, this, this, this is not part of the law of Moses at Sinai. This was given way beforehand. Under the Sinai covenant, and the Jews were under, uh, that, you know, there's restrictions on this, isn't there? Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. No, 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 no. Inside the Sinai covenant, you got narrowed down and restricted some things you can eat, these things you can eat, these you can't eat. With the Noah covenant, back then, eat whatever you want to eat. But don't eat the blood. Now, everything, hang on, hang on. Jesus, didn't Jesus declare all foods clean? Yes, he did. But Genesis 9 says that blood is not food. Everything is food, 9 verse 3, but don't eat the blood. Any animal, any plant, but don't eat the blood. Remember, this is not part of the Mosaic law. It's not part of the Sinai covenant. It's way before that. It's not the covenant with Moses. It's the covenant with our ancestor, Noah. And yet it is still part of the Torah that is written by Moses. Hence, chapter 15, 21, from ancient generations, Moses has been read in every city. You see, if we read Moses, and specifically the book of Genesis, we will see that these things to avoid are things that are universal. They're not just part of the Sinai covenant. Idolatry is wrong because Genesis 1, God is the creator. Sexual immorality is wrong because Genesis 2, God created sex for marriage. Eating blood is wrong, Genesis 9, because blood is for life. So, Gentile Christians, don't go back to the law of Moses, James says. But there are a few things that God wants you to do that predate it, that are universal in significance. It's not about, being, it's not about salvation. It's about being godly, doing what pleases God. Avoid idolatry. Avoid immorality. Avoid the strangled. Avoid blood. That is view number two. I do want to caution you a little bit against adopting this view too quickly. I think we have to think a bit more about it. 
think about some counter-arguments before we accept this hypothesis. Right? Two counter-arguments I can think of. First of all, there is no mention of not taking blood anywhere in the rest of the New Testament, other than two other times as mentioned in Acts in relation to this decision. It's not there in any of Paul's letters, it's not there in John, it's not there in Peter, it's not even there in James. Now, on the one hand, God only has to say something once for it to count. He's God. But if this was so important as to be one of the three or four things that the Gentiles need to remember, then how come it doesn't get any airtime in the other books? Whereas sexual immorality and idolatry get lots of airtime. If we went back to our first view, that everything sub, you know, it, it, it comes under the, uh, uh, the umbrella of idolatry, well, that gets lots of attention in the epistles, doesn't it? So there's one problem with it. The second thing is that it could be argued that there is no need to obey the injunction in Genesis 9 because Christ has fulfilled the meaning of blood. You could argue that later on in God's revelation, under the law of Moses, we discover the real meaning of blood being life. In Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11, God says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So you could say that God set apart blood back in Noah's time, because he was going to use it in Moses' time for sacrifice. And the sacrifice under Moses looked forward to the sacrifice of Christ, but now that Christ has come and shed his blood for us once and for all, sacrifices are no more, blood doesn't need to be special anymore. You would then say that in a pagan context where blood is still used for sacrifice and drunk in sacrifice, like in the ancient world, of course you shouldn't partake of it. That's, that's back to the idolatry thing again. But in and of itself, blood can't hurt you, blood can't harm you. And if that is right, then I can still eat my rare beef. So which is it? Well, the answer is I don't know. I'm leaning towards the prohibition against blood. But it's not something I go to the stake over. Pardon the pun. I think I need to, need to examine it more before saying definitely and feeling the need to caution you against following me out there. Because do we have more, any more biblical evidence either way? I think about it with me, yeah? Talk about it in your cell groups or with each other after coffee or if you guys go out for dinner, you can talk about it over dinner. Hope it doesn't spoil your appetite. It's also worth looking at what other Christians have done with these verses down through the ages, isn't it? Not to say that we have to follow them. The Bible is a higher authority than tradition, but it may well be something that I've missed in working on this passage that people in other generations have, have picked up on. And so, a bit more work needs to be done on this particular issue, but I commend it for your consideration. Back to our passage. James has spoken. It says, don't trouble the Gentiles. Here are some things to be abstained from, but don't trouble the Gentiles with the law of Moses. And the rest of the people seem to agree. And so they prepare a letter to be sent to the Gentile churches, 
and they choose some key people to, to, to send, a couple of them, uh, uh, a guy called Judas and Silas, uh, who were leaders among them, uh, send them together with Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch with the letter. And what does the letter say? Uh, verse 23, okay, it's nice to read other people's letters, verse 23, the brothers, oh sorry, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greeting. Isn't that nice? You see that? They're calling them brothers. And they haven't been circumcised, but we're going to call you brothers. Right, you're with us. You're one of us. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same thing by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So, Paul and Barnabas take Judas and Silas with them, take them back up to the church at Antioch. Once again, they bring the congregation together, they read the letter, and once again, there is rejoicing. Because the Gentiles know they have been accepted. Not only by God, but by their brothers and sisters in the Jerusalem church. Judas and Silas themselves were a gift to this church. They stayed with them for a while, quite a while, exercising prophetic gift among them, encouraging them, strengthening them with many words. And after the time was up, they were sent back to Jerusalem in peace while Paul and Barnabas stay in Antioch and continue to teach and preach the word of God um, together with many others. Well, what do we conclude as we, uh, as we um, finish this passage? Let me say, we wrestled with some interesting ideas, right? all this blood stuff, right? but... Don't let that distract you from the big things of the passage. Here are four big conclusions, most important things. Number one, remember that we are saved by grace through faith. Don't add other things. No adding circumcision, no adding laws, no adding baptisms, no adding rules, no adding you have to be a member of my church, no adding, adding anything. Trust in Jesus alone for you to be saved trust. Secondly, the Gentiles too came into God's kingdom. And not only accepted by God, but accepted by their brothers and sisters. And there's lots and lots of joy in various places as they heard about the Gentiles turning to Christ. And more joy when Paul and Barnabas and Silas and Judas come back and tell the, the Antioch church that they were accepted by the Jerusalem church as brothers and sisters. 
And friends, we are God's people. We've been accepted by Him. We are Gentiles and yet part of God's family, God's nation. And we've been accepted by each other. The grace of God has been poured upon our lives. And that should be a cause of great rejoicing. Never lose the joy of knowing that you are a child of God. That you're part of His kingdom. Accepted into His family. It's a great thing. Thirdly, there are still things, as God's saved people, that we Gentiles need to avoid. Not to earn our salvation, but because of it. Leaving the blood aside for now, here are two big obvious ones. Idolatry, sexual immorality. Avoid the pollution of idolatry. If you're burning joysticks, then please don't do it. If you're praying at your ancestral shrine, then, then give it up. If you're participating in, in religious practices that do not honor Jesus, then stop. It might be hard. From these things the Bible is clear. But do not be part of something that God hates. Avoid the pollution of idolatry. Avoid sexual immorality. If you slept with a prostitute, then repent. If you're sleeping with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, then stop. If you're fooling around with someone else's wife or husband, don't do it. Avoid sexual immorality. And don't be sexually immoral on the internet either. Whether it's a second life or in porn. Pornography is a big problem. If it's a problem for you, then, then repent and get rid of it. Put on some software to help you. Or find a confidant of your own gender who will help hold you accountable. Avoid sexual immorality. And finally, we've seen the need to stand up for truth. Some fights are worth having. Paul and Barnabas opposed the circumcision party when they sent men to tell the Gentiles to be circumcised. And rightly so. My friends, when we uphold the gospel, there will be times when we have to fight. There will be times when we have to oppose error in order to defend the truth. Let's make sure that we stand up for the truth of the gospel whenever it comes under attack, especially from within the church. Not everything is worth fighting about. There are things on which Christians can agree to disagree. Probably how you understand blood here will probably be one of them. But we can never, ever compromise on the gospel of Jesus. We cannot let people add to it, like the circumcision party. We cannot let people subtract from it, like the liberals who don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. We can't let people change it from being a gospel about the forgiveness of sins through the death and resurrection of Jesus to a gospel about health and wealth and prosperity. There are many ways that people can distort the gospel. And if people in church add to the gospel, take away from the gospel, or change the gospel, then we must fight. When the gospel is attacked, we must defend it. The eternal destinies of men and women are at stake. And that is a fight worth having for the glory of God. Let's pray.